my watch congratulated me on, on a completing a 30-minute workout. <laughs> Thanks for lending your voices and uh, lifting them in praise alongside of our efforts to lead you. Have you ever taken a book and flipped back to the end of it to see how it ends? I know you're not supposed to do that, but I, I kind of like doing that. Sometimes even I'll read a synopsis of a movie just so I have some orientation points of where it's going. The Psalter, books 1 through 5 and Psalms 1 through 150, were not haphazardly arranged. They were not just thrown in a catalog or tossed up in the air or just collected and said, this looks like a good arrangement. It invites us into a story. And this morning, I want to read how the invitation begins. And I want to read you, at least in the Psalter, where the story ends. I want to ask God to make sense of it all as we do that. So two scripture readings from two Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 150. Let's stand together and hear God's word. First from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruits in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then over to the, uh, to the end of the story, as it were, at least in the Psalter, to Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, nobody loves us like you do. Nobody sings over us like you do. No one's given everything to us like you have. So this morning, in light of the fact that you've given us all that we need for life and godliness in Jesus, would you once more do it again and give us a foretaste of the banquet that's to come, that we would see Jesus and him only, and that we would be satisfied. 
Forgive the one who preaches his sins, for they're many. We want to see Jesus and him only. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Be seated. I've noticed that it's fallen out of favor a little bit. But do you remember when invitations to a wedding were quite a big deal? Depending upon your social status in the world, the amount of resources you had at your disposal, you may have gone to a printer. You may have picked out a design, thought very carefully about the wording, incorporated multiple envelopes, perhaps a little bit of confetti. Neat little surprise for those who open it at home. Some tissue paper, perhaps. And what it conveys, what it conveys as soon as you open the envelope is that there is something very special and very beautiful that you're being invited into. I think it's worth noting that as we see these bookends of the Psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 150, Psalm 1 begins the very, very first word in this summons to a life with God. This summons into uh, the, the book of the Psalms, the anatomy of the soul. It's one of blessing. It's one of happiness, right? You see this word show up 26 times in the Psalter. You see Jesus use it again in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It doesn't mean uh, blessed like I'm blessed. It's not that. Think happy, happiest, happiest are those. So I want to consider two things as we look at these psalms, as we look at a life of prayer formed and fashioned by the word of God, formed and fashioned by the psalms. A life of prayer, a life of praise. We see where it begins and in a moment in Psalm 150, we'll talk about where it ends. But this summons to a life in God begins not with, now you guys better get in line. It begins with, blessed is the man who walks. Not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The very first word in the creation account in Genesis, in the beginning, God. God brought order out of disorder. God brought something out of nothing. God brought beauty out of chaos. God brought life out of absence. In John 1, uh, echoing those words of the creation account, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we would behold God. The summons to life in God is happiness, right? But this means to say that blessed is the man and then to give a description is to say that this blessing is a choice. There is a choice to be made. Now, one of the mistakes that is made is all around us, especially here in this place in which we live. Uh, we had some friends come to town and they were like, where is, where is there that's good to eat? And I said, where is there that's not good to eat? It's not a matter here of uh, choosing to be happy. It's choosing which version of happiness you want. And so you would think, You would think that in reading the Bible and hearing God's summons to a life in him, the blessing, the happiness would be one happiness among many. The problem is that's not the choice the Bible gives us. It's not one happiness among many. It's only one happiness. There's just a lot of other really unhappy things that will ultimately come. They just masquerade as something very different. Life in God begins with this word of blessing. The whole story of the Bible is good news of rescue. Rescue from all of the unhappy, destructive, despicable, terrible consequences that sin has brought to the world. And the Psalter begins with an invitation to this journey. And the, the picture that's painted here as well is, is one of, of happiness that must have root durability, substance. So I've told you before um, that I didn't grow up in, um, in, a, in an evangelical church tradition. And so coming into evangelical, uh, an evangelical church tradition was very new for me. I was trying to learn the, learn the language, learn the vernacular, learn the culture of it all. And one of the things that I discovered was this, this confusing um, ethos to me that seemed as though to say that the moment of decision of the gospel was really the most important thing that you could do. So we were all very, very, very attuned to always getting, getting to that point uh, in sharing the gospel and in asking for a decision um, that, that we needed to get people to that moment of saying yes to Jesus. And that's a good thing, by the way. But the thing that always confused me was no one really had an answer for the question of the then what. Is it all kind of like um, we, 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 we finished the race, we crossed the finish line, someone threw the, the, the big uh, sheet of tinfoil on us or whatever that thing is that they put um, on runners. I don't run. I, my watch thinks that I did, but I don't run. Um, <laughs> whatever the tinfoil is that they throw on. Um, like, is that it? Is that what we do? Is that the race? It wasn't until I began really looking at the Psalms 
It wasn't until I began really looking at what the anatomy of the Christian life that I, that I realized that the gospel was not the finish line. The gospel was the starting line. There's a whole life to be lived in God. So the first thing that Psalm 1 shows us is that there's a summons to a life in God. The second thing that Psalm 1 shows us is that the person who has chosen, who has made a concrete, objective choice, they have realized that there is not a myriad of happinesses that the world offers, but a myriad of, of destructive, deceptive things that would maybe masquerade as happiness, but are anything but, that there is in fact only one source of happiness, and it is what the psalm describes, blessed, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This one who has been summoned into a life of God, uh, not only has been made alive in him, but also longs for what God says. The invitation of this life in God manifests itself uh, in our deepest desires. It manifests itself in uh, longing for who God is and what He has said and what He has promised. It's when God gets in there that fundamentally we start to change. That's why um, there is, you see here in, uh, in verse 1, the arena of the mind where you take counsel. The arena of what you do. The arena of where you find your belonging. Where you take counsel, where you stand, where you sit. But instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in what God says, the very word of God, what God has said, and the heart behind the God who said it is what our delight is. When you think about the roots of a tree, when those roots get down deep, The wind may come and the wind may blow. The storms may howl. See, when I was living in Florida, I was introduced to uh, very firsthand um, trees that had shallow root systems. Florida is, after all, just a big sandbar. You know this, right? When I was living in Florida in 2004, this was the summer that three hurricanes made landfall across the state of Florida. One of the hurricanes that made landfall was Hurricane Charlie. Hurricane Charlie was one of the first ones to actually come through Orlando. The eye wall of Hurricane Charlie came down my street. The next morning, as we were out surveying the damage, to have seen entire oak trees lifted and placed on top of homes because the roots were shallow. And the storm just picked them up. 
The psalm asks the question, where is your rootedness? How deep down does your rootedness actually go? Your rootedness is your delight in the law of the Lord, in the word of God, what God has said about who he is and what he has done, what he is still doing, and yet what he will one day do. You see, when your rootedness is there, all of a sudden, when the, when the storms of life come, when all of the, uh, when all of the troubles arise, when illness shows up, when the, when the job loss occurs, when friction comes into your relationship with your, uh, with your spouse or with your child, when all of a sudden, um, the diagnosis is for you that your health is not what it once was, or worse still, when there's uncertainty on the global stage and disaster seems to to loom at every turn, if your rootedness is down deep in the heart of God, then the storms don't knock you over. Why? Because you believe that God has never once been caught sleeping on the throne or off guard in the ways of the world. God is sovereign and ruling and reigning and has neither abdicated nor abandoned his throne to any ruler, to any illness, to any conflict, to any person. He is alive and ruling and reigning. And when your heart is plugged down in there, the storms may howl and the winds may blow and the disaster Disaster may come, but you're not knocked over because you believe and you delight not in what this world does or says, but who God has revealed himself to be. And your heart is rooted there. That's the tree. He's like a tree planted by streams of water in verse 3. It yields its fruit and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers doesn't mean that all of a sudden you have a brand new jet show up in your backyard because you prayed for it or asked a bunch of people to send you money. It means that whatever happens, you've chosen the one thing that actually leads to abiding happiness. Your delight is there. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. What's the chaff? Chaff is this, I mean, our, our, uh, the, the easiest way for us to understand it is like the, uh, when, you, when you pick up a, um, a, a dandelion that, that's still uh, in its seed form and you know, your kid blows it and you're like, great, now I have... Now I have dandelions all over my yard, but it was pretty. It was pretty in the moment. Thanks for that. (laughs) That's ever happened in my home. Okay, I'm just kidding. Yeah, Jay, that's actually part of the youth service project thing. I need dandelions pulled out of my yard. Um, It's this rootlessness, right? There's chaff. There's nothing. There's nothing holding it down. There's nothing giving it weight. It comes and it blows and it goes and it's gone. There's nothing at all giving it any substance or any anchor or any weight. The wicked are not so. Do you like being called wicked? If if your delight is not in God, do you like being called wicked? It's It's not a pleasant feeling, is it? And yet, that's what the Bible says. It's not just that we've chosen lesser happinesses. It's actually chosen wickedness. 
And this is, this is really the key to unlocking how we understand all of the Psalms, how we now um, enter into this life with God, that the gospel is not the finish line, but the starting line, entering in now to this life of God. It's not just that our life is found in Him. It's not just that we long for, for what He says, um, but we love what He tells us. We love what he tells us. Now, look, did you see, um, did you see this uh, part of verse 2? And on his law, he meditates day and night. Can I, can I tell you, can I tell you what this means? To meditate on God's word is not just to consider the best or most comforting parts of Scripture that would encourage us and pep us up. I mean, please do that too, by the way. Like, if you need just, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, plastered across your speedometer so that you can have a good day on 75, then do it. That is okay. But here's the thing. That's not actually what it means to meditate on God's law and delight in it. Let me, let me try and uh, unpack what I mean. Um, if you, okay, so we all like getting compliments, right? I like getting compliments. I don't take them well, but I still like getting them. Um, if you like, uh, if you only love it when people give you compliments, you don't actually really love what they say. You love how it makes you feel. It's really not the words that they're saying that matter to you. It's what the words do to you that matter. You're using their words because you're selfish. I'm selfish too. Because their words make you feel good, you want to keep hearing them. Let me ask you this question. How do you do with the person who's constantly confronting you. And I'm not talking about it in a mean way. Just constantly pointing your stuff out. The ways that you don't measure up. And the ways that you fall short. And the ways that your, uh, your best intentions still have holes in them. How do you feel about that person? When the psalmist says that part of a life with God is that we meditate on the word of God day and night, it is to enter into the Psalter in particular, but the entirety of Scripture as a whole, and delight in hearing God's voice. But it's also to delight in hearing God uh, mess with us, to mess with your will to mess with your priorities and to mess with your prerogatives, to mess with your affections and to mess with your delights. That's happiness. It's to have God mess with you. It's not to go to the fear not passages only. But it's to let Scripture speak to us in the whole of our being. It's to enter into the entirety of Scripture, to delight in hearing God tell us when we're wrong and when we're misguided. It's to receive from the dearest of friends, from the one who formed us and loves us, 
The rebuke that comes from one that wants nothing but the best for us. Not to crush us. But actually make us who we were designed to be. You see, relationships inherently involve connection. They, they depend on vulnerability. They're about risk-taking and about courageously lowering our defenses so that we can be truly, honestly, and authentically discovered by another. But I don't know about you. Relationships with this level of honest, honesty and commitment get harder and not easier. My wife knows me better in some ways than I know myself. She knows my struggles. She knows my faults. She, uh, she knows all, all of my stuff. She can call me out now before even, you know, I don't have to say anything. She just knows. And her words, her words can pierce me deeper and quicker than just about anyone. We were in marriage counseling uh, early on in our marriage uh, together because, let's face it, two sinners say I do. Woo! Um, And one of the things that came up in counseling, she said, why is it that everyone else, like everyone in the church, they can sit in your office and yell at you. And yet I say one word in the sweetest of tones and it crushes you. And counselor looked at her and said, well, you know, in the office, David's built up this really tough armor of an exterior. He knows that the blows are going to be coming. But it's at home, he lets the honor down. She said, I have a dog that has a really thick coat of hair. He doesn't let anybody get near him, but sometimes when he's at home, he'll lay down and roll on his back and invite you to scratch his tummy. He's most exposed. She said, your words get right to that dog's pink belly. Because he's vulnerable. Now see, here's the thing. In our marriage, she speaks those words to me. But I still operate like a consumer when I go to the Bible. I just go to the nice words. The not confronting words. The words that tell me that God loves me and he's really excited to have me and that I've not messed up and sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you see. But to delight, to enter in, to meditate on the word of God day and night, to go and actually uh, listen to God is to allow him to not just say the things you want to hear, but the things that you need to hear. To mess with you because he loves you. To enter into a relationship is to let your guard down and receive what God says. It's to delight in what he says, to meditate on it day and night and let our will be blocked, our plans interrupted, our character refined, our sins exposed, our pride humbled, our deceit rooted out. There's a reason why the Psalms have been called the anatomy of the soul. How do we do this? I want you to feel all of that tension, all of that redemptive tension as you go and look at the back of the book. How does the Psalter end? 
Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound and harp and lutes and tambourine and dance and string and pipe with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now, how do we do this? Look, where should we praise God? That's the first question that Psalm 150 invites us into. Where should we praise him? Answer, everywhere. In his sanctuary, in his mighty heavens, wherever God is to be found, praise him. Okay? Why should we praise God? The psalm gives us that answer as well. We should praise him for his mighty deeds and according to his excellent greatness, for who he is and what he has done. He is worthy of all of our praise. How should we praise him? With trumpet and lute and harp and tambourine and dance and string and pipe. Who should praise God? Everything that has breath should praise God. Now, how do we get there? I want you to hear Eugene Peterson's words on this psalm. He says this, the end, that is to say the conclusion, the finality, the end that all prayer is going towards is praise. The Psalms show praise as the end of prayer in both meanings of the word. The last word in the final Psalm, Psalm 150, and the goal at which all the Psalm prayers arrive after their long travels through the unmapped back countries of pain, doubt, and trouble with only occasional vistas of the sunlit lands along the way, is praise. Now, I told you that the Psalms were arranged very specifically. Over half of the Psalms, of the 150 Psalms that are collected for us, are Psalms of lament. These are not Psalms that end in grand and glorious praise the Lord. These are psalms that say, how long, O Lord? How long will you not hear my cry? And Peterson says, the last word of this journey through the Psalter, this last word of life, this last terminus of where prayer ends is praise, but it has wound its way through all of the unmapped back countries of pain, doubt, trouble, with only occasional vistas of sunlit lands along the way. He continues and says this, praises as a title is not statistically accurate, but it is accurate all the same. It is accurate because it accurately describes the end, the finished product. All prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experiences it traverses, ends up in praise. It does not always get there quickly or easily. The trip can take a lifetime. But the end is always praise. Praises 
in fact, is the only accurate title for our prayer book. For it is the goal that shapes the journey. The end is where we start from. The only way that you and I can delight in the law of God, delight in what God is telling you to do, delight in the correction and the challenge is not to see that as the whole picture. Listen, did you know that Mark Twain, when he was uh, recorded in some of his writings, he would oftentimes have this dream where he felt like that there was a large Bible being pressed down on his chest like a weight. If you feel like that I have so far given you the way to a life of praise by simply to meditate on the law of God and let God redemptively mess with you, you've missed it because there's zero gospel in that. You know, no, no. The only way that we, can, that we can fully appreciate and worship and have all of our prayers turned ultimately into praise is this. That there is only one in the whole world who meditated perfectly on the law of God day and night. There is only one who had the word of God permeate his being so that he used it correctly and rightly to express every bit of joy and sorrow and suffering and delight that he was experiencing. We cannot delight in the law without delighting in the one who fulfilled the law for us. Jesus is the one who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve to die. Jesus didn't merely show us how to live. He saved us through his very life. Jesus didn't do a noble thing in his death. He did the only thing in his death that could ultimately save us from death. Do you understand this? How do we believe then that all of our prayers will ultimately end in praise? We can only believe that our prayers ultimately and finally will end in praise when we also believe that everything in the end will be set right. That there is something left that is praiseworthy. Eugene Peterson once more. The form of the Psalter as a whole besides assuring completeness, also suggests that there are no shortcuts. Hear me, if you've been um, not, hear this. The form of the Psalter as a whole shows us that there are no shortcuts to this life. The thoughtful and painstaking process of selecting, arranging, and concluding is the exact antithesis of glibness. This psalm is not just a word of praise slapped onto whatever mess we're in in the moment. This crafted conclusion for the psalm tells us that our prayers are going to end in praise, but that that is going to take a while. Don't rush it. It may take years, decades even, before, the, before certain prayers arrive at their requisite hallelujahs. 
Not every prayer, beloved, is capped off with praise. In fact, most prayers, if the Psalms, if the Psalter is a true guide for us, are not. But prayer, a praying life, finally becomes praise. Prayer is always reaching towards praise and will finally arrive there. If we persist in prayer, laugh and cry, doubt and believe, struggle and dance, and then struggle again, the promise of the Bible is that surely Psalm 150 is where we will land. Do you know how we get there? We get there because the grave is empty and Jesus is alive and he's coming back to get us. And in those, in that final day, every sad thing is made untrue. When you meditate on the law, you ultimately see Jesus the perfect law keeper. And you ultimately see him waiting for us to welcome us to a banquet, to pop the cork and start the party, to bring us to the table as sons and daughters, not simply guests, but family, when we sit down and have the feast that we have been made for and long for. When you meditate on the law of God, it's not enough simply to try and memorize a blueprint of what we ought to be doing. It is more fundamentally meditating not only on the character of God, but the one, Jesus, who lived, loved, laughed, and lost his life only to take it back up again in victory. When you put your roots down there, the storms and the fury of life will blow and blow but your roots are connected to something that's far more durable and nourishing, Jesus himself. He invites you and I to come to that place, to laugh and to love and find your life in him. Blessed is the one, happy is the one, truly happy is the one who delights in the law of God, who meditates on it day and night. For at the end of all days, when the journey is done and the story is written and the new story begins, It all ends in the same refrain. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord.